You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. The very beginning of this year, there was an episode of the Outside In podcast called Rake and Ride. It was refreshing to see a piece concerning trail advocacy, especially by media outside of mountain biking. I reached out to the host, and he was kind enough to speak to me. Now, today's episode is the conversation that we had, and we'll get right to it. As always, I'm your host, Brent Hillier. This is episode 58 of Frontlines. My guest is Sam Evans-Brown. He's the host of the Outside In podcast. Hi, Sam. Welcome to the show. Hey there. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So in, in January, we released an episode called Rake and Ride, and it was focused on, on what you called pirate trails. And there's a number of other terms for these trails, including unofficial, unsanctioned, illegal, rogue, social trails, hobo trails, lomers, loam lines, rake and rides, fall line trails, secret trails. You know, where I live, we call them dark side trails. And I, and I might get in trouble for saying that out loud. It's kind of uh, the fight club rules where the first two rules of fight club is you don't talk about fight clubs. So, <laughs> um, you know, what were some other names that, that you had heard out there? Does that kind of run the, the gamut of, of what you had heard? So I, I mean, uh, bootleg trails is probably mm. the the most common thing you hear from heard from some of the old guard that make these trails. But but yeah, I mean, then there's also like the bureaucratic euphemisms that we refer to in the show. So so non network trails, uh, uh, user created trails. Those are things that the the Forest Service, the federal government, likes to refer to them as. Yeah, interesting. It's funny how the the bikers have a term. And then the, the land managers have a different term. I know one of our land managers here refers to our illegal mountain biking trails as uh, unsanctioned running trails. And that is code for <laughs> illegal mountain bike trails. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's all really the, a name for the, the same thing. Essentially, these trails are, are created by people that, that didn't have permission and you know they they create uh issues and so there was a a great twitter thread that you wrote about some of the feedback that you got on this episode and i wanted to kind of run down a a couple of the points that that you made in that that twitter thread but before we do that i I just wanted to, to focus on on the story of abraham hour and he's a rabbi from brooklyn who died on on one of these rogue trails near franconia new hampshire could you give us a, a quick little context first, though, on on how this rabbi got lost on those trails? Yeah, so the the trail in question that he was hiking on is something called Artist Bluff, and it's a very short, very accessible hike. So it's across the street from Cannon Mountain and Echo Lake State Park, which are both big tourist draws. So so Cannon Mountain has a tram that you you know it's a gondola that you can ride to the top all summer long. Uh, Echo Lake is just a big swimming hole, a beautiful spot. It, you know, pretty high in the White Mountains. Well, <laughs> high by East Coast standards, not not by West Coast standards. And and so it's just a huge tourist draw and and 
you know, there's a parking lot that Cannon, uh, which is a ski area in the in the winter, uses for overflow parking when there's a lot of when there's a lot of activity on a big holiday weekend. So it's probably like a 600 car parking lot. And the Artist Bluff Trail is a one mile loop that goes from that great big parking lot. And it's got great views because, uh, you know, as as the name implies, it goes up on top of a bluff. There's a little bit of a cliff. You can look down at uh, Franconia Notch, which is this sort of glacially carved passage through the mountains. And so tons of people do this hike. And the, the trail is it's a super highway. It's one of these these hiking trails that you see that's totally been blown out by a lot of foot traffic. So it's, you know, 12, 15, 20 feet wide in, in a lot of places. And one of the very first mountain bike trails that was built by riders, who, who local riders who live in this area back when there were no places to ride your mountain bike, goes off from an intersection at the top of this trail. And, you know, and it's a one mile loop. And so when I say the top of the trail, the, <laughs> it's like a it, it's like a five minute walk up to the intersection. And then this trail, the, the mountain bike trail went off the backside and it, it dipped down into this uh, wooded bowl that's about two square miles that has absolutely nothing in it. And so what happened is is Abraham had come up and he was he and his wife had visited Echo Lake State Park and he decided he wanted to take a walk around Artist Bluff. He, uh, you know, according to the fish and game officers who found him, he was wearing penny loafers and he, he was going counterclockwise around the loop, which meant that he would have hit this intersection with the mountain bike trail right at the very end of the hike. So he was probably a quarter mile uh, of downhill walking to his car. And all he had to do was take a left and he would have been home safe. But, uh, you know, because he probably didn't have a great sense of direction, didn't spend a lot of time in the woods, he took a right. You know, he saw this this mountain bike trail and he thought that was the way he needed to go. And the trail had actually been abandoned for a couple of years at this point. And so he he must have lost it fairly quickly uh, and then was unable to find it again. And uh, and he spent three days wandering in the woods uh, and and much to his, you know, bad luck. Uh, it rained the night or the, the, the night after he he got lost and he was probably hypothermic and confused and, and died of exposure. And so some of the feedback that you got uh, on this story, you know, was that it wasn't the mountain biker's fault that that he died and that he, he should have been prepared to go outdoors. That it's, you know, anytime you go out into the wilderness, you're kind of taking that responsibility uh, onto yourself. But the rabbi wasn't the only person that got lost here. Is that correct? Yeah. So <laughs> there's a couple of really funny points on this story. One is that Fish and Game didn't even realize that this was a mountain bike trail that he had followed. And and the only people who, who knew about the mountain bike trail were the local police department. So when I talked to some of the Fish and Game rescuers, they said that wasn't a mountain bike trail. That was a goat path. Hmm. And and I was like, there are no goats in the White Mountains, you know. Uh, so so it was a strange a strange line. But but I heard from from, you know, probably a half dozen people from from local mo- mountain bikers and from uh, the Franconia Police Department, who the gentleman, Mark Taylor, who I interviewed for the story, that this was in fact a mountain bike trail. So so that's that was sort of that was sort of one funny funny point. But but that just sort of tells you I think the degree to which this trail was was kind of a secret and 
that was one thing. But but yes, indeed, uh, you know, a school group had gotten lost on this trail, and so the local police department was was pretty familiar with this. They they you know a, a couple times a year would find someone who had taken this right instead of the left and had wound up down in this bowl, and and typically there hadn't been a problem. No one had ever gotten hurt because of getting lost in this way. And in fact, there was a there's a cross country ski trail that that is out on the other side. And, and so usually when someone got lost on, on Artist Bluff, they would just drive over to the other side and, and go and walk the cross-country ski trail. And typically with it, they would find the people there. But, uh, you know, Abraham just had some bad luck. Uh, and and I, I think <laughs> this question of whose fault was it is not really one that the, the podcast episode contemplates. I didn't see my role as as, you know, blaming the mountain bikers are finding blame as to who as to who died, but really to take a look at a system of trail construction and and what kind of outcomes uh, that system yields, and and this is one of the ways in which just allowing trails to be developed totally unplanned and unmarked and and sort of secretly leads you to a, a suboptimal outcome. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a section of trail where I live in in North Vancouver, and it's it's one of the most popular uh, hiking trails. They're even talking about in the summer actually putting essentially like a bouncer <laughs> at the bottom of it to only right. prevent a certain amount of people on it at a time now. Yeah. And but when you actually hike this trail, you can count, you know, and only people who are aware of what a mountain biking trail looks like, but you can you can count the illegal mountain bike trails that connect in with this section of trail and it's it's alarming how many trails actually just illegally come into this really popular hiking trail. And it's not something that most people would notice, but in a state where you're lost and you don't know where you're going, it can really uh, create a, a lot of issues. Right. And I, and I would say, you know, that's probably my big argument is that in places where you have uh, the this high probability of some sort of conflict, the, the, you know, there should be some kind of planning or, or this should be regulated in some way. And I don't know exactly what that would look like. Uh, you know, I think it would be different in different types of land. But but I just I, I think it's a pretty safe case to make that having unmarked secret trails going off from a place where you're very likely to have a lot of people passing by who have very little wilderness experience is not great. So what's happening, we're getting a ton of mountain bike trails that are being built right now. They're purpose-built mountain biking trails. But at the same time, there's this kind of vocal segment of mountain bikers out there that that feel that uh, trails are, are being sanitized or that the trails that are being built are, are too easy. And so as someone getting into the sport, you know, in the last few years, do you feel like there's this endless choice of trails for a beginner rider out there? <laughs> uh, I can only speak for my region. Uh, and the answer to that is no. The, like the vast majority of trails that we have encountered. Um, so both my wife and I, and, I, and I'm a little bit more hardheaded than she is. You know, so I was, my, my background is I was a cross-country ski racer in college. Uh, and so I like things that are hard physically. So mountain biking, was, especially cross-country mountain biking, was a perfect fit once, once I finally got a bike. But my wife, she is not an endurance athlete. She prefers soccer and ultimate frisbee, and and so she is not one who's who's going to just grind it out on some some you know brutal uphill section, some brutal uphill rock garden section, for instance. 
when we were looking around for trails to get her excited about mountain biking, uh, it was hard. I mean, the the first the first probably you know almost a half dozen rides that she went on ended with her in tears, uh, and that was that was just staying locally. And it wasn't until we got a little more discerning and started to started to drive to places that that had trail networks that were sort of recognized as being good for beginners that that she finally started to have some good experiences and and get excited about mountain biking and, and you know sort of move up the ladder of skills and and be able to get over little rocks and little logs and that kind of thing and 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 find it to be rewarding but you know that basically we're talking about years i mean probably probably 4 or 5 years of her having bad experiences on a mountain bike because there was basically no local offering of easy trails you know i've heard i've heard this from a bunch of friends including including the friend who first got us onto mountain bikes here in town that that you know there's this nostalgia for the days when trails were hard and now they've all been they've all been neutered and everything's too easy and it's just like there is still a lot of difficult trail out there and very little in the way of beginner trails and so the idea that there's not room for more beginner trails i i frankly i just can't even understand it yeah, it's definitely this this perception that's that's out there, right? You know, beginners, from my experience, are are always looking for for something that that's going to work for for that first bike ride. It and I live in a community that is world renowned for its its technical bike trails. And when I first moved here, I asked, well, what's the easiest trail to start on? And you know, I was sent down a trail that was a, a black, and it was labeled. Uh, it was a blue square next to a black diamond, which I'm not totally sure what that means because <laughs> there were certainly <laughs> sections of it that were black and you would walk down and that was that was supposed to be the easiest trail and that's has since changed but these riders out there are just constantly complaining about the fact that like well how come you just keep building these easy trails how come you keep building blues and and greens you know we want uh, a black diamond trail do you think maybe that nostalgia is just you know looking for something that maybe didn't even really exist back then but maybe they're just remembering it in a certain way or or do you think that there are a lot of trails that are kind of being lost in this network or or kind of being removed I think that there is a certain amount of truth to what people are talking about because I see it you know now that I'm now that I'm a little bit more competent on a bike uh but I'm not you know I'm not great I'm not one of these I'm not uh I'm not a good trials rider, for instance. Whenever I've gone riding with somebody who who sort of trundles along at four or five miles an hour and and has just perfect balance to get all, over all these really tricky, uh, you know, balancey spots, I I'm terrible at that. Basically, the only way I can get over difficult sections is by going full speed at them and <laughs> you know plowing through. But whenever I've ridden someone with someone like that and and they're they're showing me the types of things that they're trying to get over in order to sharpen their skills, I start to recognize where in my local trails some of those some of those um those obstacles have been made easier and and they'll you know folks will point to these they call them cheater rocks around here where where you pile a couple of rocks so that you can more easily get over the really big rock. I suppose that if you're a really, really great rider who wants to be able to develop those those sort of like low speed trial skills, that, that those rocks would indeed make things easier and, and that would feel like a loss. I think the thing that I would say to, to folks who are in that crowd, especially around my part of the world, is that there, there are still a very large quantity of trails that 
that will serve the purposes that you're that you're hoping. It's just that we've gotten to a place where not every trail is built for you. And it, and it used to be that every trail was built for you. And now now because we're concerned about growing the sport and, you know, getting more people outside, uh, you know, some of those trails, yes, have been made easier in order to make the sport more accessible, which I, I do think that feels like a loss. But, you know, <laughs> the world can all be for you is mm-hmm. what I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, it, there's a lot of conversation right now in, in mountain biking about diversity and, and, you know, the lack of people of color in the sport of mountain biking. And I kind of see a lot of parallels with this argument about, you know, the sport changing and, you know, this, this privilege that, that the sport has. And, and, you know, it's, it's the, the conversation I think is, is about, it's similar to the conversation about equality that just because everybody is getting equal rights does not mean that you're losing your rights. <laughs> you know, the, right. the, the white middle-aged mountain biker is not necessarily losing anything. They just aren't getting this kind of exclusive world kind of built for them anymore. And it's interesting to kind of see even the, the use of the name, uh, you know, goat path kind of, uh, kind of highlights things where trails aren't necessarily created by by us I've, uh, a listener of the podcast mentioned on on the facebook group recently that you know how many how many goat paths how many animal trails have kind of been appropriated by mountain bikers to create mountain bike trails right and it's not like we give those animals credit for for starting that path and we always kind of take ownership of trails like they're like they're ours or like this person built them and that means that it's theirs and in a lot of respects trails are very fluid and constantly evolving and constantly changing. And yet we want to kind of put this, this kind of colonial ownership on something that we don't really control a lot, you know, a good rainstorm and a trail will change pretty rapidly, pretty, pretty quickly. Hmm. So can you, can you think back to what your, your very first impression uh, of what mountain biking was, you know, did you have like a a first look at what the sport was or or what you kind of thought it was all about? What was your, uh, what was your first introduction to it? Yeah. So here in Concord, there are trails out behind Concord hospital and it's a, it's a big piece of conservation land that the city owns and has created, they've created walking paths through it. It used to actually be a a little rope toe, a, a ski hill. Uh, and it's all grown in now, so it's second growth forest. And uh, and and then abutting the public land, there's a a big swath of private land that's totally undeveloped. And so the hiking trails, people mountain bike on the hiking trails, and and that you know is a source of a bit of user conflicts occasionally. So then the mountain bikers started cutting their own trails, which left the public land and were built almost entirely on the private land. And they are these trails are I refer to it as a spaghetti monster. I have been living here in Concord since 2011, and I I used to live about a mile from the trails, and I would go and I'd run on them almost every day. And then now I have a mountain bike, and and so you know probably probably about a, a you know two dozen times a year I'll be out mountain biking and I'll I'll, I'll explore the trails a little more. And I still get lost. <laughs> there are just sort of trails on top of trails, and a lot of them look very similar, uh, you know, and it's it's very densely wooded, so you can't really see many landmarks, uh, and you really just have to memorize them. And to this day, there's probably five or six rides that I can do and know that I won't get lost, and then there are intersections that I get to, and I just don't even know where I am. And And so two friends took me out on these trails. One of them 
put me on his single speed, which was a, a 29er, uh, <laughs> you know, front suspension single speed so that he could, he could ride his full suspension, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, carbon bike. And, and the two of them took me out onto these hospital trails and, and, you know, <laughs> I'm like a fit guy. So I was able to keep up with them until we hit, hit anything that was technical. Yeah. And then I was just flying off the bike. And I, I probably, I probably came off that bike, you know, th- you know, 40 times in the course of a two hour ride and, and came out of the woods bruised and bleeding. And I had a blast. And like I said, we went with my wife who, who rode with the, uh, on the, the bike of uh, my friend's wife and she was in tears. Right. And, and so, so it was this strange experience where I had had, I had, it was very hard, but I had had fun. And, but for Aubrey, my wife, it was very hard and she had not had any fun. So I felt sort of like, <laughs> I felt guilty for having had fun. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, and, and it was sort of like, we hung it up after that. We didn't, we didn't ride again for probably, for probably another 18 months because it was just like, okay, you know, that's, that's not a sport for us that we can do as a couple. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And, and it sort of continued in that pattern until, until I finally got myself a bike. And and it was like, I was having fun and she wasn't, and I was just dragging her along on these death marches. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's amazing our marriage survived. <laughs> <laughs> it can be a, a a good test of a relationship. I like to, uh, I always like to joke whenever I see a couple in, in a car driving down the highway with two bikes on the rack that like, oh, I wonder how that argument in the woods went for them. You know, it's 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 just one of those things where sometimes when you're in a relationship with somebody, there's certain activities that maybe you shouldn't do uh, together, at least for the first uh, the first phase of things, right? But I think what it speaks to is is kind of the the two personality types or or two two personality types and and how they're going to to interact with the sport of of mountain biking differently you know what what i kind of think is that anybody that is that type of person that likes pain that likes suffering that likes challenges that you know likes a sport that is hard and has a lot of failure just inherent with it you know they're all mountain biking already you know and and yeah. if they're not mountain biking they'll get into it and and they'll do what they need to do to to kind of get into the sport but if we're trying to uh make this sport attractive to other people then then we need uh we need uh, better options we need more accessible trails we need easier trails out there we need better signage all that that kind of stuff right and and you know and and i'm i'm a huge supporter of just getting more people into the sport the more people that we have in this sport the the better off we are from an advocacy point of view the bigger voice that we have especially if that voice represents the the surrounding community better instead of just a bunch of uh, of middle-aged white guys but uh, there's some people that will will kind of argue that like why do more people need to get into this sport like why can't we just have a sport that's for us and 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 that's it why do we always have to grow the sport's popularity right is yeah is is there just a question of like you know growth like the economy is a good thing and and to not grow something is a bad thing or can we actually you know is there some some argument that like well maybe we'll just make this sport for those people and for other people there's plenty of other activities that you can do to to stay fit and healthy you know is there is there a valid argument in, in just kind of saying like mountain biking's hard and and it's always going to be hard yeah well 
so it's very funny. So after this episode came out, those two friends who took me riding, they called me from they were in a car driving down to Cape Cod where they were having a, a they were going to go mountain biking for for a long weekend. And they were sort of joking and they made fun of the podcast and they they sort of made fun of me. And so I, I texted one of them back and it, it this led to this drawn out back and forth via text message where where I was sort of picking apart his arguments about what was wrong with the story. And where we eventually landed was him saying exactly what he, he expressed exactly what you just said. And he said it very explicitly that like mountain biking is not for everybody. It's a hard sport if, you know, and, and he said, you know, if you, if you aren't, if, if you don't like the challenge, then you can always go up on the cog. And he's referring to the Cog Railway, which is a, a tourist train that takes people to the top of Mount Washington here in our <laughs> in our region. Um, and you know that just struck me as so incredibly dismissive. And yeah. and and you know, it's it's like saying you know if you if you don't like the sport the way I like it, then you know y- you should not have access to something that actually is exercise and is good for your body that you should just be sitting on the tourist train and here's the crazy thing about that comment to me the cog railway for for the most of its history was literally powered by coal <laughs> like yeah. you, you know like he's relegating these poor this whole swath of the population to sitting behind a, a churning coal engine you know and obviously that's that's a, an extreme example of of rhetoric there the the thing for me is is it seems so clear that it doesn't have to be an either or you know that that i think we can have trails for beginners and trails for experts and and i don't understand the the pushback against having trails for beginners uh, especially because you know if you look at if you look at the ski industry for instance there is a large chunk of the of the alpine ski population that won't ever progress to the point where they're on the expert trails they won't go into the glades mm-hmm. they'll stay away from the steep slopes mm-hmm. the mountains that that have more difficult terrain are the ones that they'll wind up avoiding and so you can select the the trail network that works for you uh, and 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 i don't understand why having an offering for more types of person is is actually you know it feels like very zero sum thinking to me yeah so you know i think i think in this instance what we've got is a podcast where two people who are agreeing with each other are having a conversation so so (laughs) (laughs) it would be very interesting to have somebody on here trying to make the opposite the opposite point but but i frankly you know as someone who whose job is to look at at evidence and facts i i just don't see the evidence for for you know the fact that that mountain biking has to stay small now you asked an interesting question uh which is that like is growth always good and the argument i would make to those who who want mountain biking to stay small and to stay niche is that at least here in the united states we're in the midst of an obesity epidemic for one and so so like maybe as just a public health you know epidemiology pro- problem we should be interested in getting more people out and active in in, in as many ways as possible but but second we're we're at a point in our history where we have you know very serious environmental threats and and evidence shows that people care more about you know protecting wild spaces when they've got some sort of relationship with those spaces and so if if getting more people out on mountain bikes is a way to make it so that more people give a shit uh you know maybe you should want to get them out there yeah 
Well, and that, that really speaks to the, the theme that, that we've kind of been progressing through on this, uh, on this podcast for the last couple episodes. And, and that is, you know, are mountain bikers conservationists or are we just out there for, uh, kind of this egocentric reward, you know, mountain biking's fun. And is that the only reason why we do it? Or do we do it because we also care about nature and and we have this uh, relationship or this eco-centric relationship as, as well, where we're out there. And I think you might get into the sport for that egocentric relationship, but, but what you sometimes come out with is, is that eco-centric relationship. And that's where we're going to see, you know, mount, you know, we, we say, and, and sometimes it's like, oh yeah, it's great to kind of say these things, but you know, that's where we're going to see mountain biking actually affect change in the world is, is by having more and more, uh, not just advocates for trails, but just advocates for green spaces, for wild spaces and, and protecting the areas that we have out there. Yeah. I mean, I think, from my experience, you see people progressing up a, a a sort of, you know, a staircase of what they care about. And and that it's not a given, right? I mean, uh, people receive the culture of the activities that they're engaged with. And so when you look at hiking, for instance, there's a very strong wilderness ethic that is embedded in the culture of hiking. And and there's a lot of sort of historical reasons for why that might be. And But if you look at the culture of mountain biking, it's it's been slower to to adopt that that perspective. And I think that, again, that that's for historical reasons. Like you look at who the original mountain bikers were and they were thrill seekers, right? And it's only been, you know, as, as the sport has grown to encompass people who, who have some of that, that, you know, uh, conservationist ethic that, that this, these ideas of resource preservation, uh, and, you know, uh, an impact, you know, recreational impact have started to creep their way into mountain biking culture. And again, you know, I have <laughs> only been doing this for a couple of years, but I think, I think it's pretty clear, like you can, you can look at, you can look at, you know, part of the culture of mountain biking and see see the sort of roots of the sport, you know, the the Red Bull Rampage and and these 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 total sort of like uh, you know, fling yourselves down down some incredibly steep slope uh type type activities. Uh and 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 know that at least at some point in the history that this was this was sort of a core piece of of the culture of the the sort of primogenitors. But then you look at, you know, where where the sport is heading and, and you know, bike packing and and activities that that are, are sort of slower, you know, and are more about moving through the space as opposed to, you know, uh, as opposed to the, the technical skills required to to get over or, or down a, a specific slope. So I think I think what we're seeing is that mountain biking is is beginning to adopt a culture of of conservation because the people who are attracted to it have got some of that in them. Interesting. Uh, so you're out in Concord, New Hampshire. So that means that, uh, your local trail association is a, a New England mountain bike association, uh, chapter. Mm-hmm. How did you first hear about your local chapter? I assume you, you got into the sport of, of mountain biking. And then did you hear about this kind of local uh, trail association after that? Or did you hear about this chapter before you got into the sport of mountain biking? No, I, I knew about them before. Um, in fact, the, my wife, uh, my wife's first job in Concord was with a, a local, edu- you know, environmental education outfit that embedded in the public school system. And one of her coworkers 
was married to the the president of the local Nemba chapter. So we met them almost right away as soon as we moved into town. The <laughs> they they are active outside of Concord. So so there's a really fantastic trail network, probably a 30-minute drive from our home at a place called Bearbrook State Park. And they have for a very long time been working with the state to create sanctioned trails there that that are and they're great. I mean they're fantastic. Uh it, it was a a perfect example of you know the sort of the light bulb moment when when we first rode over there and they have the full range of difficulties including wonderful flow trails for beginner riders and so so we you know uh, we were aware of them for a long time it probably took us until 2015 2016 to finally get onto the get onto the trails that they were working on and only recently so so last year they started to work on a trail network that would be built behind a a, a school here in town and that has only just started are there potentially more mountain bike related episodes coming uh, to the outside in podcast in the future <laughs> Uh, talk to my editors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so if this is my moment to make a pitch for your listeners to listen to Outside In, it, it's it's a show that doesn't dwell exclusively on one topic. Uh, so so we did we actually did a road biking episode back in the spring, and I actually feel like they're very they're very closely tied together because it was it was a story of how a lot of our uh, road cycling infrastructure has been shaped by the preferences of competitive cyclists from the sort of uh, you know 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, so, so we do occasionally dip into sports. We do a lot of stories about just sort of natural resources more generally. Uh, I personally, my favorite subject is actually energy infrastructure, um, and so I'm constantly trying to convince <laughs> the crew over here to do more energy stories. But, uh, but we we. The strength of the show, I think, is that it doesn't it doesn't focus too too deeply on a single uh, aspect of the outdoor world. Mm. Yeah, one of the episodes that I've got bookmarked to to listen to next is uh, thirty two is is the new forty, which is <laughs> um, just from from the bio that I've read about it is about the the forty hour work week versus kind of pairing that down to a, a thirty two hour work week, which isn't necessarily something that I would I would think would be on kind of an outdoor related podcast but i guess you know when you think about it that's a huge component of of getting outdoors and and recreating is is having time to do that yeah absolutely and that that episode is a, one by one of the producers jimmy gutierrez who comes to to the show with a different set of life experiences and a different perspective about about uh you know what is an interesting story and that again is i think one of the strengths of the show is that it's not just uh it's not just me who who is deciding what's interesting Awesome. Uh, when do new episodes come out? So they come out every two weeks. So the next one is coming out a week from tomorrow. So it will have already dropped. Um, so the latest episode is, uh, is something called 10 by 10. We is a, we refer to this series as 10 by 10, which is uh, looking very closely at a, at a very unique uh, natural system. So the last one we did was was environments that are are built to burn, as they say. So they're they're uh, pyrogenic ecosystems, ecosystems that thrive on fire. This latest one that we're doing uh, is about frozen lakes. So uh, what what types of organisms thrive in a place that that completely freezes over every year? After that, there's we've got a political story coming up about uh, about the sort of first family of New Hampshire 
nature politics and and their long history with climate change. Uh, yeah, and just a lot of stuff in the pipeline. Actually, the month of April is we're doing a fun drive. And so we'll have four episodes. We'll have one every week during the month of April, including some some really neat stuff that I'm pretty excited about. Well, Sam, thanks so much for, for taking the time uh, to chat with me. I, I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's been a great conversation. Yeah, no, and thank you. And uh, and if there are any angry mountain bikers out there who disagree with us, I, you know, I've been fielding <laughs> emails all week, so I, I will continue to do so. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. I've included a link to the Rake and Ride episode in the show notes, as well as links to the two 10 by 10 episodes that Sam mentioned. Like always, you can find this show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FrontlinesMTB. You can send me an email or audio file to info at FrontlinesMTB.com. You can join the discussion on our Facebook group called Advocates on the Frontlines of MTB. You can stream the show on Mountain Bike Radio, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, leave a review on wherever you get the show. It helps others find the podcast. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes, along with a link to the Frontline's MTB Book Club, where a portion of any purchases made on Amazon after following those links will be sent to the podcast. I want to thank everybody who's made a donation over the past couple weeks. The show is still in the red, but we're almost there. So if you enjoy listening to the show, think about donating. Music, as always, is by Lee Rosevere. Production notes by Jennifer Pride. Artwork is created by Brandon Gallagher-Watson and BGW Creative. And big thanks to Ben Walnuck and the team at Mountain Bike Radio for their continued support. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening, and happy trails.